Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. All right, so we're going to read from Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to read the first 10 verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is a proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn, his fear, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Amen. Thanks, Murphy. So this is week three or four. Next week is our Vision Sunday, and uh, we're going to have baptisms, and we're going to think why we exist as a church. And Jonah's a great uh, book to think about uh, why we exist and what our vision is, because it's about a prophet being sent by God to a pagan city who didn't want to know anything about God, to tell them this great message of who God was and how they needed to get right with God. What's our job as a church in the city? It's to go to a city that typically most people don't have any time for God to tell them that they need to get right with God. It's a great book. It was a challenge for Jonah. I think it's a challenge for modern-day Christians living in Dublin. That's why we're having a look at it. And today is all about second chances. Look how the story begins, verses 1 to 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Jonah is given almost word for word the identical call in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. But in the first time he got given it, he did the opposite thing. He went in the opposite direction. He went to Joppa. He got a ship, boarded with some pagan sailors and ran off to Tarshish or sailed off to Tarshish. And, uh, and then things went a bit sour. The Lord sort of came after him through a violent storm. He got thrown overboard and he gets swallowed by a big fish who then vomits him up. And inside the fish, God has this, uh, Jonah has this moment of getting right with God. Um, and then the, the call comes in chapter three. So chapter one, the call, disobedience. Chapter two, he gets right with God, repentance in the belly of the fish. Chapter three, a second call. And this time he obeys the word and goes. Um, so he's given a second chance, and we all need second chances, every single one of us. In fact, the book, nearly everyone gets a second chance. The sailors who are on this boat going to Tarshish got a second chance. If you remember, they repent. Chapter 2, Jonah gets his second chance. Chapter 3, today, the great and important city of Nineveh. The whole city gets a second chance. And second chances mean new beginnings, and new beginnings mean something compelling and fresh, don't they? a new job, a new house, a new academic year, a new car, a new relationship, new opportunities, uh, fresh vision, fresh purpose, hopefully new hope. I'm sure there are areas of your life where you wish you could just have a complete new start there because you made a bit of a hash of it. Jonah chapter 3 says you can. There's always a second chance. 
So just like the sailors, just like Jonah, just like you and me, we're going to think, what would it mean? What lessons can we learn about what it means for a city as a whole to be given a second chance, for revival to come to a whole city? Jonah chapter 3 is unique and remarkable in the Old Testament in, in that I don't know, I think in ancient history, it's the first uh, recorded revival I know of in ancient history. 120,000 people, a whole city decides to get right with God. And the city is described in the book of Jonah as wicked and violent. It was a pagan city far from God. So the question is, how does revival come? We're looking at Jonah to revisit our vision, to get a vision of what God would do through us and in the city. Well, how would a revival, like imagine it. If revival came to Dublin, imagine it. Wouldn't it be awesome? Don't you want that? Masses of people turning to God. That's what happens today. It doesn't happen often, but it can happen. Because what happens in Nineveh, whilst it's remarkable, is not just unique to his time. There has been other revivals. So how does a revival come? What do we do as God's people? What does God do? And what does it mean for city groups as we think about City Group Sunday? And here's the key lesson. Jonah chapter 3 starts with Jonah being given a second chance. And it ends with Nineveh being given a second chance. Jonah chapter 3 starts with Jonah receiving grace, really in chapter 2, and it ends with Nineveh receiving grace. In other words, what happens to Jonah happens to Nineveh. God's people are mediators. What happens in us happens to the city. So let's think about how revival comes. We're going to learn three things from the passage. Revival comes through a weakened and empowered servant, verses 1 to 4, a contrite heart in the people, Verses 4 to 9, and a compassionate God. Let's look at these. A weakened and empowered servant. If you were God, and we've all done that, if I were God, what would I do? Well, if you were God, would you, would you disqualify Jonah for his flagrant disobedience? Do you remember when we, we sort of read ahead in chapter 4, we realized why he ran away when God called him to go to Nineveh? Because he didn't want God to have compassion on the Ninevites. They were his enemies. And he says, I don't want you to have compassion and forgive them. I want you to smite them. And uh, so, so Jonah goes, no, I, I don't want you to love them, God. So he's a racist. He's full of judgment. How would you react if you were God? And you call someone to go and love someone, and they say, no. And they're running the other direction. Would you cast them aside? Would you find another servant, another prophet? If anyone deserves to be cast aside and judged by God, surely it's Jonah. He's had so much. God has revealed so much to him. God has been so faithful to him. And uh, should he not be condemned as a hopeless servant, a failed prophet, and a rebellious and sinful man? And by the way, he is all those things. He's a hopeless servant, he's a failed prophet, and he's a sinful and rebellious man. It's undisputed, it's beyond doubt. There's no wiggle room in Jonah chapter 1 to say otherwise. How could you say otherwise? He ran in the opposite direction. But here's the thing. God loves giving people like Jonah who make a real mess of it a second chance, because they, they are the best material in the hand of God, because they get grace in a way that those of us who don't have a huge failure in our life don't get it. Peter, God, I'm, Jesus, I'll never deny you. If everyone else does, I won't. Three times he did to a servant girl. He couldn't even have courage to stand up to a servant girl. His fall was spectacular, but so was his restoration. Do you remember on the beach? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? God had a whole, Jesus had a whole new plan for him. He would not have understood grace to the depths that he'd understood it if he hadn't denied him. Think of Paul 
the great persecutor of the church, he's got letters from the chief priests to go to Damascus to kill Christians. And he's already done it. And he approved at Stephen's death in chapter 7 of the book of Acts. God loves to use people like this because they get grace. What about David? Leanne read from Psalm 51. What happens before Psalm 51? King of Israel, everything at his feet. God had been so good to him. What does he do? He looks over. His men are at war. He should have been at war with the men, but he's living in luxury as the king. And he looks over and he sees a beautiful woman bathing, Bathsheba, and he lusts after her. And he abuses his power. You'd call him, a, you'd, you'd call him today a sexual predator. He takes his position of power to find a girl and go, I want to sleep with you. And he does. He makes her pregnant. And then he goes, right, we need to kill the husband. We'll try and get the, first of all, he tries to get the husband to sleep with, with Bathsheba so to cover up the pregnancy. And he's too righteous. So then he puts Uriah on the front line to die in battle. He says, when he's right there, pull the, pull the army away so he dies. Total abuse of power. A total failure. And yet God used him magnificently because he got grace. So God uses people who are complete failure, an undeniable failure, because they then become an undeniable recipient of grace. Whatever they do could not be their own earning, their own merit. It's all of grace. It's all a gift. And so often we need to be weakened so we can experience grace. We need to be humbled so we have nothing to boast in. We know it's all of grace. But as we are humbled, as we realize we've totally blown it, and you still experience God's love and a second chance, it empowers you in a way that was, is truly remarkable. It exalts you. It, 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 it sets you free. And so you become empowered because you were weakened. Do you know the story? Jean Valjean, Lemus, famous. He's a thief. He's poor. And he has to go and he steals bread and he gets put in prison and he's got his prison officer, Javert. And uh, he then let, he's let out of prison after he's doing a bit of time, but he's on probation, so he has to check in all the time. And a priest takes him in. And a priest, you know, is very kind to him, but eventually Jean Valjean steals from the priest all the treasures of, of, of his house. And he's caught by Javert. And, uh, and he says, no, 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 the priest gave them me. And he takes him back thinking he's going to be exposed. Do you remember? And, uh, and Jean Valjean goes back, and the priest, uh, you know, and Javert says, well, you know, look, we've caught him with all your goods kind of thing. And... Uh, and, uh, and the priest says, no, I gave them to him. And he says, no, no, actually, he forgot the best stuff. And he gives him more. He's guilty, but he experiences grace, and he melts. It changes him. He softens. His life transforms. When you're humbled, and yet you experience grace, it exalts you and sets you free. Jonah has been transformed by grace. Why? Because he was weakened of all his pride. He was chastened by God, yet he was empowered by the love uh, that he experienced. As I said, what is going to happen to Jonah happens to Nineveh. As one man is humbled, a multitude is humbled. As one man experiences grace, 120,000 people experience grace. One servant dies to himself so a city can have life. For God to bring revival to Dublin, he has to start with you and me. And how does he start with us? He weakens us. How was Jonah humbled? He was thrown overboard. He was swallowed by a fish. He was vomited three days later. It wasn't pleasant. It was brutal. But God had to give him the brutal treatment to wake him up, to bring him to his senses, to get him to swallow his pride so he could really get grace, to drive out the racist heart. One commentator calls it merciful wrath. 
I just finished a book, well, over a year ago now, but I read a book called A Severe Mercy. This is what Jonah gets, A Severe Mercy. This guy, Sheldon Van Alken, who's the author of this book, uh, him and his wife, Davy, they uh, become Christians under C.S. Lewis at, um, I can't remember if it's Oxford or Cambridge, and uh, they become Christians, and... Uh, but they, but Sheldon had made an idol, and they were, and then they married, and and uh, Sheldon had made an idol out of his marriage, and he loved he loved Davy so much, and then he was so jealous that she was really on fire for Jesus, and kept growing and wanting to serve, and he didn't, and he said, I want you all to myself, and you know you've got all the, you're after you know you love Jesus more than me kind of thing, and she wanted to serve, and he didn't, and uh, so much so that he said, we can't have kids. I don't want to share our love with anyone. He'd made a total idol out of his marriage. And, uh, but, but, but Davy starts to, the wife starts to pursue Jesus and, and, and serving, and she's full of, you know, love, and, and he despises that so much so that he starts to fall in love with another woman because, you know, he can't have Davy all to himself. And then Davy, the wife, is diagnosed with, can't, uh, I, don't, I don't actually know, a terminal illness. Eventually, she dies from it. And during the illness, C.S. Lewis writes letters, which are recorded in this book, to console him and encourage him and counsel him. And in the book, Sheldon has now been transformed. He talks about how he made an idol out of his love, out of his wife, and, and how, uh, you know, all the things he did wrong, and how he did start to resent God. And uh, one of the letters is called A Severe Mercy. Well, in it, he has the Lewis writes about the severe mercy and uh, how God had used his wife's death to wake him up from his spiritual backsliding. It was severe, but it was a mercy. This is what... Uh, Lewis writes in his letter. He's, he's talking about marriage. He says, It was made for God and in him for its neighbors, first and foremost among the children it ought to have produced. And he chastises Sheldon for saying, you, you know, you couldn't have children because you wanted to keep it to yourself. And then he's, Lewis says, One way or another, the thing, this idolatry of marriage, had to die. He goes on in the letter to say this You've been treated with a severe mercy. You've been brought to see you were jealous of God. So from us, Sheldon and, and, and Davy, his wife, you've been led back to us and God. And it remains to go on to God and us. I, God's above everything, even your marriage. She was further on than you, and she can help you more where she is now rather than she could have done on earth. You must go on. That is one of the reasons why suicide is out of the question, because he talked about committing suicide in the desperation of after his wife's death. Another is the absence of any ground before believing that death by that route would reunite you with her. Why should it? You might be digging an eternally unbridgeable chasm. Disobedience is not the way to get nearer to obedience. Lewis says, I write like this to you because you're one of my most loved friends. This is his response, Sheldon's response. After this severe and splendid letter, I loved Lewis like a brother, a brother and a father combined. If I'd been at all tempted to break my promise to Davy about following her by my own act of, of suicide, the temptation vanished after that horrified look at Lewis's eternally unbridgeable chasm. In the margin of my letter, I wrote a small ugh by hand. He finishes, it was death, Davy's death, that was a severe mercy. There is no doubt at all that Lewis is saying precisely that. That death, so full of suffering for us both, Suffering that still overwhelmed my life was yet a severe mercy, a mercy as severe as death, a severity as merciful as love. God sometimes has to give us these things. He has to throw us overboard into a fish. He, 
horrible things might have to happen to us, but we can suddenly realize God is after us, and he's trying to shake us out of our spiritual slumber so that we might love him above all else, even our own spouse and our marriage. And he does that with Jonah. He, Jonah is chastised by God. He's weakened to get rid of all his self-sufficiency. This is gospel humiliation. Our greatest need is that our hearts might be fully and wholly God's. That's what Sheldon needed. It's what Jonah needs. It's what you and I need. It's actually what Dublin needs. But as we are broken and humbled and thrown overboard, we experience grace afresh, and it empowers us. Do you remember Jesus talking about his, whole, his death and the whole of the pattern of Christian ministry put it like this, very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves his life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There must be a dying to self so there can be life in others. We have to become weak so God can be strong in us. We have to be humbled so that others can be exalted. And by the way, just think about it practically. Have there not been times in your life when you've tried to share your faith with someone who's not a believer, or you've tried to encourage a believer within the faith, and you've had all neat and tidy answers, and it, it looks so pristine, and it hasn't helped them one bit, and then you let them know your vulnerabilities and weaknesses and sins and mistakes, and suddenly a door was open for the gospel? It's the Jonah principle. Get rid of all that pride, all that neatness, and be humbled. Reveal your failures, your setbacks, your difficulties, and watch how God, when you there's death at work in you, there'll be life at work in someone else. When we are weak, he becomes strong. I'm learning that lesson again and again. God's servants must be weakened, must be humbled, must be broken. That is where the power is. What's the application? There's two applications. One, if you are currently messed up, running from God, disobedient, making decisions that really don't honor God, do not disqualify yourself. Your very act of disobedience right now, whilst it needs repenting of and you need to confess sins and get right with God, could be the very thing that ends up being the power of God in you to others. Like it was for Paul, like it was for Peter, like it was for David, like it was for Jonah, like it was in every single servant. If you ever read the Old Testament, they're weakened so they can be raised up. So sure, you need to repent, but don't disqualify yourself. Never. Secondly, do you want to be used by God? Do you want to see revival in Dublin? Expect to be weakened. No, ask to be weakened. I dare you. Ask. God, weaken me so it's your power. Weaken me so it's not my pride, it's your grace. It's a scary prayer, but if you want to see revival... We need to know God's power rather than our self-sufficiency. Do you remember Paul? He had a thorn in the flesh. Three times he said, God, take it away. It's too much for me. And three times God said no because his grace was sufficient. Do you remember? He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. What does Paul say? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. May God have severe mercy on us. May we boast in weakness and learn to delight in it. Like Jonah, we can say, it's not of me, it's all of God. What's needed for revival? A weakened yet empowered servant. Do you want that? Or do you want a nice, cozy life? Where you're like, hey, I'm a Christian, but I don't want you to be radically used. Ask God to weaken you so he can empower you. 
Secondly, a contrite heart in the people. Look at verses 4 to 9 there. When Jonah preaches his eight-word sermon, it's five in the original Hebrew, the whole city repents from top to bottom, the king to the servants. They believed, they fasted, they put on sackcloth and ashes. A decree was issued that everyone should call on God and give up their evil ways. It's an amazing revival. A weakened servant turns up to Nineveh, and the whole town repents. And look at this humility. Who knows, they say. God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. They did not presume on the compassion of God. They did not feel they've earned it or deserve it. They were not entitled. You know, like the Ninevites, unlike modern Western people in Dublin, had no problem holding together God's compassion and his fierce anger. See that? They knew they deserved God's fierce anger. They were sinners deserving of punishment. The city deserved to be overthrown. When God finally comes on judgment day to bring judgment to all mankind, it says in Romans, every mouth is going to be silenced because everyone's going to realize he did the right thing. There was no miscarriage of justice or mercy. No, he did the right thing. And the Ninevites know that. They'd sinned, they'd rebelled, they'd acted wickedly, they hadn't sought God, they'd sought themselves, they deserved death, spiritual, physical, eternal. And one day, everyone is going to experience that moment of all mouths of silence before the judge of the earth who has done right. And no one is going to go, but. Everyone now protests, God, God, this, God's in the dock. On that day, we'll be in the dock and every mouth will be silenced. The people of Nineveh heard the preaching of Jonah, acknowledged that they didn't deserve saving, and they said, perhaps God will. No entitlement. And God did. It was remarkable. But it's not unique. There's lots of other times in history when God brings revival, or has been a number. And I wanted to read this one because it's uh, quite pertinent. It happened uh, only uh, 250 miles from this building. 1859, the townsfolk of Coleraine witnessed some of the most, this is a report of an eyewitness of what happened in the revival in Northern Ireland. The townsfolk of Coleraine witnessed some of the most amazing scenes in the whole movement of Ireland. A schoolboy, under deep conviction of sin, seemed so incapable of continuing his studies that the kindly teacher sent him home in the company of another boy already converted. On the way home, the two boys noticed an empty house and entered it to pray. At last, the unhappy boy found peace and returned immediately to the classroom to tell his teacher, I'm so happy, I have the Lord Jesus in my heart. This innocent testimony had its effect on the class, and boy after boy slipped outside. Imagine this in your school, a few of you are school teachers. The master, standing on something to look out of the window, observed the boys kneeling in prayer around the schoolyard, each one apart. The master was overcome, so he asked the already converted schoolboy to comfort him. Soon the whole school was in a strange disorder, and the clergymen were sent for and remained all day dealing with, their se- with seekers after peace. Schoolboys, schoolgirls, teachers, parents, and neighbors, the premises being thus occupied until 11 o'clock that night. On the 7th of June, the next day, 1859, an open-air meeting was held in Fairhill to hear one or two of the converts. So many thousands attended that it seemed advisable to divide the crowd into separate meetings, each addressed by an evangelical minister of one denomination or another. The people stood motionless until the very last moment when an auditor cried in distress. Several others likewise became prostrated, bewildering the ministers, who having no similar experience previously, scarce knew how to help the distressed in soul and body. The clergyman spent all night in spiritual ministrations, and when the sun rose the following day, was spent in a like manner." Wouldn't it be wonderful for God to visit, for people to be convicted of sin and stop finding excuses and get right with him? May God stir up our friends. May God stir up us to know our spiritual state that we need to repent and get right. What's the application? 
you've got to pray. We've got to pray. We've got to be a praying church. How do we ever bring this kind of conviction to lives? We can't make the prayer and worship night your number one thing in the diary each month. Never miss it. If you want God to break out in revival, pray. Pray in city groups. Come to the prayer and worship night. Pray for your friends. What's needed for revival? Firstly, a weakened and empowered servant. Secondly, a contrite heart in the people. Thirdly, a compassionate God. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Notice again that God's compassion, his relenting, and his anger, his previous warning of judgment, go hand in hand. Many of us love to talk about God being a God of love, and we miss out the bits about destruction and judgment and, and, and fierce anger at sinners. If you read your Bible and the teachings of Jesus, you cannot in fact, Jesus used the story of Nineveh repenting to say, to talk about the certainty of judgment. I take Jesus to be the most kind, compassionate man that ever lived. He talked clearly and regularly about the certainty of judgment and the need to repent. Just listen to how he, how he interpreted the book of Jonah. As the crowds increased, he's got popularity. Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was, in the, was assigned to Nineveh, so also the Son of Man to be to this generation. The men of Nineveh will stand up at their judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. We should not feel embarrassed nor want to hide away from the fact that God has a righteous anger. Miroslav Volf, famously in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he's a Yale scholar, he's Croatian, he experienced the Balkan Wars firsthand, and he dealt with lots of liberal theologians all over the world, particularly in Harvard and Yale, who know God is a God of love, not a God of anger. And he said this, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. In other words, if God doesn't hold bullies to account, what kind of God is he? He's not a God of love. He lets bullies get away with their atrocities. And he says, if you find the idea of God's judgment hard, he says this, which by the way, he did. I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have been slit to the throat. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea that God is not a God of wrath will invariably die, he says. The only reason you don't like the idea of a God of wrath is because you live in comfort. Go and live in a war-torn land and go, God's not going to bring judgment. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't hold. The only reason, he goes on to say, that I don't have to take up my sword and kill my perpetrator is I know God will do the right thing one day and he'll bring the divine sword. If God isn't going to bring judgment, I'm going to get back now. So he ends up saying, with Martin Luther King and all the rest, the only way you can stop the circle of perpetual violence in this world is to believe there's divine violence, and therefore you love your enemies, because you know that judgment will come, and they will be held accountable. Becky Pippert, in her book, when talking about God's wrath, says, we tend to be taken aback by the thought that God would be angry. How can a deity as perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. So what's God's problem? But love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. 
How can a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Does he just play fast and loose with the facts? Oh, never mind, boys will be boys. Try telling that to a survivor of the Cambodian living fields or someone who's lost their entire family in the Holocaust. No, to be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and implacably hostile to injustice. The writers are saying the same thing. Anger and love are two sides of the same coin. Jonah realized that. The people of Nineveh realized that. Becky Pippert, Miroslav Volf realized that. Do you? Or do you get embarrassed that God is angry? You want him to be. He's not a God worthy of worship if he lets injustice. He just sweeps it under the carpet. And here's the question. Will you let the reality of final judgment of all mankind drive you to share the gospel? Or will you live as a universalist who goes on believing and hoping that in the end everyone will be saved? They won't. Jesus is clear. There'll be gnashing of teeth, he says. Judgment day is a reality. And like Jonah, we need to start sharing the message when we can, finding the opening doors, not bashing people over the head with it. Of course not. But we must. Scott Sauls has written a great book, and in, in it he has a chapter called Is God the God of Accountability or the God of Compassion? And he puts it like this. The more threatening the cancer, the more aggressive a faithful doctor will be to get, him, to, to get it removed. The, the more deadly the addiction, the more aggressive a loving family will be in confronting it. The more likely a child is to drink poison, the more aggressive a loving parent will be in screaming, stop! The more distant a friend is from God, the more direct a loving Christian will be in conversations about eternal realities. Look, I'm not good at it. Maybe you are. I doubt you are. It's hard, but we can't shirk from these things. The reason Nineveh repented is because there was clarity. People need to get right with God before judgment day. God is a God of compassion. That's the book of Jonah. He wants to have compassion on all people, but no one in the book of Jonah, except in chapter one, but none of the Ninevites or the sailors ever presume on that compassion. Paul puts it like this when talking about judgment day and the kindness of God. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience. Oh, God's going to forgive me anyway. Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Don't presume on God's grace. Today might be the last day. Get right. If you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, you haven't committed to him, get right with him. And if not, and you're not sure, come on intro and go, I'm not sure if I want to get right with him. Who is he? I'm not sure if I believe in him. You owe it to yourself. If you are a believer in Jesus, let's not live as universalists. Let the reality of God's judgment and his desire to have compassion on all people spur us to go to the city. So let me summarize. There's three things needed for revival according to Jonah chapter 3. A weakened and empowered servant. Expect it. Ask for it. It's the only way we can learn grace fully. A contrite heart in the people. Let's pray for it. Let's pray for our friends. Let's pray for the city. A compassionate God. But let's never presume on his compassion. Let's be ready to repent ourselves and share the gospel with others. As city groups, don't just become internal Bible study groups where you have a nice little meeting. That's part of it. Flex your missionary muscles. Get creative. Invite your friends to the intro course. Did what Catherine did. I'm going to invite you. So, how do you feel? It's a heavy talk, right? Do you feel inadequate? Do you feel overwhelmed? Do you feel scared? Do you feel guilty? Do you feel like a failure? Don't be. When we are weak, he is strong. When we fail, that's when we learn grace. And remember the true Jonah. He didn't go from Jerusalem to Nineveh. He went from heaven to earth. And it, Jesus says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man would be in the heart of the earth. What was he doing? 
on the cross, what was he doing? He was satisfying divine love with divine wrath. And he took, he, he, he was held accountable for all our sins so we could experience his compassion. And he wants what he has done for us to spur us on. Go to Nineveh. Today's the day of new beginnings. The second chance is when we're weak, he is strong. Let's go to the city. We have nothing to fear. If you want to stand, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite Corey back. We're going to finish with a song. And then uh, there'll be a chance to pray. Let's take a moment again, if you're comfortable, you can close your eyes and just digest it. Uh, I found it hard preparing this week because it's heavy stuff. We don't like to speak on it, but I felt convicted and compelled that I had to. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, I just thank you for coming. And I hope today you've heard that God wants to know you and has given you a chance to know him. Father, thank you for uh, Jonah 3 a remarkable revival, a city transformed. Lord, would you do the same today in Dublin, in our friends? And would we be willing to be weakened so we can learn grace, that, it's not us, it, we, that we're not self-sufficient people, that we need you at every step? Lord, may we be driven to praying for you to change hearts and minds. And may we be totally amazed and aware of your compassion, but never presuming on it or taking it lightly. Lord, we thank you that it says that the reason you haven't returned in 2 Peter 3 is because you want to give people a chance to repent. And we pray you'd grant that repentance to many in the city of Dublin and in Ireland. In Jesus' name, amen.